Turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 14. The theme is Christ, the Lamb of God, sits in judgment. I entitled it that because uh, we're going to read in chapter 14 about various activities that are taking place uh, in the midst of the judgment of the seventh trumpet. So by way of introduction, remember that the seventh trumpet has sounded and we are reading about the various activities that occur during the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet sounded in chapter 11, verse 15. And so the rest of chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, 15 through most of 16 is the activity and events that's happening uh, during this seventh trumpet. In chapter 13, we learned about the Antichrist and the false prophet. And in chapter 14, we're going to learn now that Christ, the Lamb of God, sits in judgment on the ungodly rebels who have joined the forces of Antichrist. So we're going to focus now on the first five verses of chapter 14. I've entitled that, The Lamb and the 144,000 Saved Jews, beginning with verse 1, chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. By way of comment, this special group of Jewish men was sealed by God before the seventh seal was opened. We saw that back in Revelation 7. And now they are seen on Mount Zion with the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought we should contrast this picture, the 144,000 saved Jews who had received a seal in their forehead with the picture described in chapter 13, which described the followers of the beast who have a mark either in their forehead or on their right hand. So God has his people and the Antichrist has his loyal followers. Verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Comment, the 144,000 are standing with Christ on the heavenly Mount Zion. They're singing before the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, speaks of the heavenly Mount Zion. So don't confuse Mount Zion, the earthly Mount Zion, known as Jerusalem, with the heavenly Mount Zion. Here is this passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, that speaks about the heavenly Mount Zion. The writer of Hebrews wrote, verse 22, You have come to Mount Zion 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. There is a heavenly Mount Zion, uh, the New Jerusalem, which is the place that we read about in the closing chapters of Revelation, that has streets of gold and gates of pearl. It lies four square, and the place that most people think is the eternal abode of Christians called heaven. This heavenly Jerusalem is not the eternal abode of the saved. As we will see in chapter 21 and chapter 22 of Revelation, out of heaven will come this new Jerusalem, this city that's mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 12 and that was just mentioned in chapter 14 of Revelation, the heavenly new Jerusalem. It's going to come out of heaven and it will come down to planet earth when Jesus sets up his kingdom. Remember, heaven is not the permanent abode of the godly. It is part of the scenario, but God is going to eventually make a new heaven and a new earth, a new world. And we're going to dwell on this new earth and this will have access to this city that is called the heavenly New Jerusalem, and we will have access to the most gorgeous, beautiful, park-like new, new earth that you can imagine. It's going to be absolutely gorgeous. You don't want to miss it, and I don't want to miss it. We want to participate in all these wonderful things that God has ahead for us. Verse 23, the writer of Hebrews went on talking about the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn, those who are Christians who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the saints of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So that's what was meant when we saw that they're at Mount Zion and they're singing this new song before the throne, these people are in heaven. And because of the special experiences that the 144,000 have that are sealed during the tribulation period, that seven-year period of God pouring out his wrath upon the wicked nations and people of this world, these 140,000 saved Jews will serve as evangelists and missionaries, and they're going to have experiences that you and I don't have and they'll have a new song to sing that others cannot share. It'll be their personal testimony probably in song. And a personal testimony is personal. So that's what I understand is going on here. Verse 4, chapter 14 of Revelation. These are the ones who were not defiled with women for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. I think that first sentence, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins, bothers people. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Verse 5, 
In their mouth was found no deceit, talking about the 144,000, for they are without fault before the throne of God. This is how we know this scene is in heaven. The phrase defiled with women does not imply that sex within marriage is evil. Because it's not. Hebrews 13 verse 4. Marriage is honorable in all. In the marriage bed undefiled. It's God's design. God planned marriage. And so it doesn't mean that sex is evil. It merely indicates that these 104,000 Jewish men were unmarried and did not succumb to the licentious, sensual, uh, immoral culture that will prevail during that seven-year period. While most of the world bowed down to the image of the beast, 144,000 saved Jews are faithful to the true God. And while others lied to get what they needed, the 144,000 were without guile and blemish, totally honest. Now we come, verses 6 and 7, to an angelic appeal for sinners to repent. Again, listen to how merciful God is during this tribulation time. He's going to send an angel. Verse 6, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Every person living in that tumultuous time will have an opportunity to hear the gospel and to receive Jesus as their Savior if they want to. Verse 7, the angel is going to be saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. He's the creator. He deserves our worship. The angels preaching the good news concerning the everlasting life and entrance into the kingdom of God. He's urging all people everywhere to change their allegiance from the beast to the lamb. That brings us to verse 8, chapter 14, an angelic announcement that Babylon is fallen. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she has made all nations drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon is a phrase that is taken from the original Babylon. The landmass that we know as Iraq is the place where Babylon was located up the Euphrates River. Saddam Hussein was wanting to rebuild that ancient city and make it the capital of Iraq. But God had promised that Babylon, once it was finally destroyed, would never be rebuilt. But what was the role of Babylon in biblical times of history? Babylon was a commercial seat of political power, 
of commerce, of influence for the entire then known world. You remember early in the book of Genesis when there, everyone spoke the same language. Where was it that they were going to build this edifice to reach up into the sky, seek to arise as high as God, which would of course be impossible. It was at Babel. And God smote the peoples at Babylon with the confusion of multiple languages. It seems like when everybody can speak the same language and can share ideas, that sin is proliferated. And when you have language barriers, God did that to keep sin from multiplying. He'd already destroyed the world once through the flood, recorded in Genesis 6 through 9. And when we come just a few uh, short centuries later, you have wickedness abounding again. So God at Babylon confused the language. So this city has played a pivotal role in the history of mankind. And so that term is going to be applied to the end time city of commerce that's going to exert the most influence on the world. So the question comes up, well, what modern city, Brother Brown, do you think will be the biblical, quote, Babylon of that day? And I tell you, I don't know. You know that economic situations can change seemingly overnight, that a superpower can fall into eclipse and another nation rise seemingly overnight and become a superpower. A lot of people said that America is going to be that Babylon and, and other people say that Rome, the heart of Roman Catholicism is going to be that Babylon and other people say, no, it will be somewhere in the uh, Middle East and I say, it will be whatever it is and I don't have any prophetic insight and no one else does. At that time, there will be a major seat where Antichrist will occupy and rule. Where that's going to be, I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But that place will be destroyed and God will level the, the, the ground. So Babylon refers to the entire worldwide political, economic, and religious kingdom of Antichrist. And we saw in chapter 13 that there's going to be a ten nation confederation that lends its power to Antichrist as he makes war and requires everybody to have the mark of the beast to buy or sell anything or die and so it's going to be a terrible terrible situation and this angel is announcing that this kingdom of Antichrist Babylon will be destroyed in Revelation chapter 16, verses 17 through 19, and in chapter 18, we'll learn more details about the fall of Babylon. Revelation 14, 8 pictures Babylon, this commercial uh, center, politically, economically, uh, amusements, uh, educate everything being controlled by Babylon. It will cause the world to become intoxicated with her pleasures. And includes rebellion, hatred, and idolatry toward God by participating in the Antichrist's false 
system. Verse 8 said, She, Babylon, has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So this code word, Babylon, is going to refer to the seat of power that Antichrist occupies. We come down to verses 9 through 12 of chapter 14, an angelic warning against worshiping Antichrist and against receiving his mark. Verse 9, then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, so everybody's going to be warned. Nobody's going to be deceived into taking the mark of the beast without knowing what's involved because God is merciful and he's going to tell everybody, loudspeaker across this entire world, voice, if anyone worships the beast, that's Antichrist, and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. God is saying, there comes a time when the cup of sin and iniquity is full, and I'm going to pour out my wrath, and you better not take the mark, or you'll participate in the judgment. Such a person will be tormented with fire and brimstone, in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. With such a warning, who in their right mind is going to say, oh, I want the mark of the Antichrist? Hundreds of thousands, millions of people are going to take the mark. Unspeakably sad, mind-boggling, that they would ignore the warning of God's angels when they're told explicitly with a loud voice, they receive this warning. You think it makes a difference? Well, I hope for some people it does, but evidently not for the majority. Verse 11, in the smoke, he goes on to describe what's going to happen. The smoke of their torment. These people that will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb, Jesus. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now that is, that is mind-boggling scary. And yet, it's going to be a choice that you make with your eyes wide open, knowing the consequences. God is a just God. His punishments are always equal to the sin committed. Never more, never less. And the fact that people consciously choose to rebel against the Holy God, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son as an offering for sin, and who offers sinners forgiveness if they'll repent right up to the last hour, as it were, the last moment of judgment. If you'll repent, it shows how Terrible and awful is the sin of persistent disobedience. An angelic warning against worshiping Antichrist and against receiving his mark. I just am again impressed with how merciful and kind and open God is. No secrets. Tell you exactly positives and the negatives. You choose. 
Well, I choose Jesus. I choose to follow Christ. I've, I choose to be true, no matter what the cost, to God. These people have repeatedly ignored God's warnings and the opportunities to repent. And if people persist in their sins, even after God sends judgment and warnings, they have only themselves to blame. Nobody, nobody will have the right to blame God for anybody who goes to hell because God is not willing that any should perish and working continually to draw people to the Lord and people if they harden their heart and stiffen their neck and I will not have anybody telling me I'm going to run my own life I'm going to live the way I want to live God lets them do that but there is a payday someday the punishment of the damned is not a temporary measure the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever without hope of acquittal they pay the eternal price of having chosen evil over righteousness verse 12 here is the patience of the saints the perseverance of the saints here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus verse 13 then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me write Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. The connection with verse 12 is clear. Faithfulness to Christ may issue in martyrdom. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Again, Antichrist says, you don't take my mark, then we'll do our best to eliminate you from this world. But the faithful dead, if they even have to die through martyrdom, the faithful dead are blessed in that they have entered victoriously into their rest. And when the songwriter wrote, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus, life's trials will seem so small when we see him. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. And so he concludes, so bravely run the race till we see Christ. And as I read these verses and study this passage, my heart is strengthened that by God's grace, I'm going to faithfully follow Christ every day, no matter what the pathway may be, and I'm going to live for him and die in the faith, in the faith. Notice the contrast between the afterlife of the unrepentant sinner and those who turn from their sins and put their faith in Christ. Torment forever to the sinner, rest and blessedness to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. It will be better to endure persecution patiently during the tribulation period for faith in Jesus Christ than to deny Christ and suffer throughout eternity. We come now to the closing verses of the chapter, verses 14 through 20. A picture of the final judgment in terms of the reaping of a harvest. Two visions of judgment bring the chapter to its close. In verses 14 through 16, we'll read about 
the advent of divine judgment in the familiar figure of a grain harvest. Farmers grow grain and in the ancient days they would take a sickle. They didn't have reaping machines, they'd take a sickle when it's ripe to cut it down. And that's the first uh, picture. And as God reaps and destroys and gets ready to set up his millennial kingdom, he's going to destroy the sinners like the sickle comes and just cuts down the grain. And in verses 17 through 20, emphasizes the violent nature of the wrath of God in terms of the treading of a wine press into which grape clusters of the earth have been harvested and cast. And that would be an indentation about this deep and the grapes would be put in and had a trough that would pour out and in the olden days they would wash their feet and then they'd tread on those grapes to squeeze them and the grape juice would run out of the trough into uh, new wineskins. And uh, so what happens to the grapes? They get stomped. So listen to the word of God. The grain harvest symbolizes God's judgment, which will be described in greater details as the seven bowl judgments that will be within that seventh trumpet. We'll read about those in chapter 16. The word of the Lord in verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. There's uncertainty about the identity of the one like the Son of Man. Many commentaries say it's Jesus. Others say it is an angel. I have no firm opinion. It's one or the other. Whatever, whichever it is, I don't see that it matters. The message is the same. Judgment is coming. The picture is the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ being mowed down like a harvester cutting grain. Now we come to verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, city being Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now the reaping of the harvest of the grapes most likely corresponds to the final battle of the tribulation period 
that final battle is known as the Battle of Armageddon. 600 furlongs, 1,600 furlongs, a furlong 670 feet. 1,600 furlongs is approximately 184 miles. And this figure corresponds roughly to the length of the nation of Israel. Perhaps the best way to interpret this is that the bloodshed during this reaping is found throughout the entire land of Israel in that final battle. There'll be the nation, the armies of Antichrist will be gathered together against Jerusalem. And they'll pretty much populate the land of Israel in there with their support and their facilities and their mobilization of the armies the, the, that will be there to fight against Jerusalem. And so the, the Lord, when he comes back, is going to destroy the opposing armies with the power of his speech. The, his, the imagery is a sword proceeding out of his mouth. He totally slaughters these, this million and more an army of the Antichrist and there will be blood found throughout the entire land of Israel and some blood that, blood that splattered will be splattered as high as the horses bridles in the midst of this decimation of the armies of Antichrist so ends chapter 14 we've been talking about Christ the Lamb of God sits in judgment uh, a more detailed picture will be found in Revelation chapter 19. And uh, we're working our way along. That ends our exposition for today.